Call for Action presents Of Consuming Interest, a public service show that discusses scams, deceptive offers, and other consumer concerns. Here's the director of WJLA 7 Call for Action and your host, Shirley Rooker. George Washington. Well, we think of him as the first president of our country, a great military leader. But do we think of him as an entrepreneur? Well, I don't think most of us do, and certainly I really didn't until I read this fascinating account of Washington's life and what he had done. And this account was written by John Burlaw. Now, John, you may know, is a senior fellow fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, but he's the author of a new book, George Washington, Entrepreneur. And it's really quite fascinating. I learned so much. John, this is a great work. Congratulations and welcome to Of Consuming Interest. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on to talk about my book, George Washington Entrepreneur. Yeah, because you and I are using talking about policy issues. And so this is this is a real treat today because I didn't know that George Washington was involved in breeding mules. I didn't know anything about his. I have been to Mount Vernon a number of times and I love it there. But it was so interesting. But let's start back at his early life. What kind of education did George Washington have? He was largely self-educated and didn't have the advantages of many of the other founding fathers like Jefferson, like Madison of going to college. He had a tutor when he was a child, but his father died when he was 11. And basically his formal schooling ended when he was 14. But Washington uh, read um, uh, all of all of his life, everything from books about horsemanship, read lots of books about agriculture, to Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations, which laid the foundations of capitalism. So between that and talking to people, he was you know, very inquisitive in, in the letters that, that, you know, we still have from him, particularly about his business affairs. He became, you know, a very wise, uh, self-taught uh, Renaissance man. And he really didn't start out as a wealthy plantation odor, did he? No, no, he was, he was the, uh, you know, the, the third, uh, the third son, he had two older half brothers. In those days, the older brothers, uh, particularly the first son inherited everything. And his father died when he was 11. So he needed to help, you know, uh, su- support the family. So really, that's what uh, it was around then that his that his schooling ended. But he started out as a, he, he became a surveyor, a land surveyor, which was the gig economy job of its day. While he was there, he learned about the land and what makes land attractive for farming or development. He bought some land he he learned about, some undeveloped land with his wages and sometimes got paid in land and started his first career as real estate speculator. Then he would eventually inherit part of Mount Vernon when his brother, his older brother who held title died when Washington was about uh, 30, but he didn't, he had already acquired, you know, these 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 land holdings, and and he had to put substantial work into Mount Vernon too to make it what it is today. All right. So now he owned Mount Vernon at, at the time that he became a commander of the Revolutionary Forces. Um, is that correct? I mean, he was he was in Mount Vernon long before he came into the public eye. Yes, he got Mount Vernon full title to that in 1761. When he was, uh, he would have been 29 years 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 old. Um, so, and he had fought. It was after he had fought the French in Indian War and had just uh, married married Martha. But uh, and during the 1760s, he transformed it from growing to uh, just simply tobacco, which he thought was harming the soil, to 
diversifying his crops into uh, weed and hemp and several other uh, types of types of crop as well as a fishery and a flour mill where he put his uh, G. Washington signature as a brand on the bags of flour and exported those with with the G. Washington brand to uh, to Great Britain, to the mother country of Great Britain throughout the colonies and to the colonies, the British West Indies and the and the Caribbean. And, and his his entrepreneurship led him to look very closely at what England was doing in terms of taxation and repression of the colonies. And did that have something to do with his desire to freedom from from England's rule? Very much so. And it also may have influenced how he was chosen to uh, lead the revolutionary forces. Uh, Britain had, in addition to the taxes, in fact, historian Woody Holton, who I quoted, called the taxes, the uh, like the Stamp Act, the straw that broke the camel's back, had restrictions on colonies from manufacturing that said, you know, the colonists, it was illegal for them, you know, and, and just had various degrees of enforcements to even have a blacksmith shop and, and make and make nails. They, in the mercantilist system of Great Britain, they wanted, um, the British wanted the, basically the colonists to farm and that uh, England would make things with, you know, what, what was starting as as as, manu as manufacturing. So, well, and Britain asserted the right and just even seize um, uh, the small mills. And so Washington wrote a letter in 1769 to his neighbor and fellow founding father, George Mason, and said, if they have all these new taxes, may they, and these were his words, quote, restrain my manufactories. So he saw a threat, a long-term threat to all, all he had built, which made him more inclined toward revolution. Now there, and as far as how he was chosen to let, to lead the revolutionary forces, there has always been something that has vexed historians about that, how in an era where there weren't really much mass communication, how he would have been chosen on the first ballot, how others would have known about him. I mean, he was a colonel in the French and Indian War, but he really, he had some failures there and wasn't, it wasn't really that, you know, something he would be that well known for. But there is a clue, I think, in John Adams' nomination speech where he talks about, among other Washington's virtues, Washington's, quote, independent fortune. So Washington was known throughout the colonies as a successful businessman, as well as, you know, a military leader, I think that shows. And maybe it was because people saw, had gotten flour with the G. Washington that they knew he was, he was a name and he had a successful enterprise and could be successful with the, with the troops. And I suspect Washington saw that this move by the Brits to restrict what they could manufacture in the colonies, he saw it as an effort to keep them dependent on the Brits. So uh, I can see how anybody who's got a vision for his country and for what he's doing would feel so restricted because he could, I think he probably could just foresee that there was closure, there was not uh, ability to do and be creative with this kind of repression, repressive treatment. So anyway, fascinating look at his life. I mean, I'm telling you, John, your book is, is incredibly interesting. Uh, some of the reviewers were just, they were so enthusiastic about it. I'm sitting here reading these reviews and thinking, ah, did John write these himself? But then I know you didn't. But anyway, it was it's a very interesting account. And I was fascinated 
by the fact that Washington came up with all of these things like giving up tobacco or producing less of it and growing wheat. I mean, what a forward looking thing and then exporting it to the Brits. So a brilliant move by the man. L anyway, let's take a brief pause here and uh, let our listeners know that they're tuned into Of Consuming Interest. I'm Shirley Rooker, I guess is John Burlaw. Now John is usually here talking about policy issues because he's a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute, but he's also the author of a new book, George Washington Entrepreneur. And I will tell you, if you have any interest in history, you should read this, or actually you should read it anyway because it talks about how Washington was a visionary. And one of the things that you said in there that I did not know, now I, going to Mount Vernon, I had seen a lot of the stuff that he had done there with the mill and, and the cider mill and all of the things that he'd done, but I did not know about his vision of space. Tell us about that. Well, yes, it was, it was um, amazing to me. And I think it's one of the things that proves he had in his own way as innovative a mind as say, say Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson, hot air balloon flights had begun in the 1780s uh, in, in, in France. And Washington, when he was president, um, welcomed them here with uh, balloonists here, gave them certificates of safe passage and had a big ceremony with cannon fire and the works for the, for the balloonists in, 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 uh, in Philadelphia. But he had written to a friend, um, even you know, a couple right when this was starting in uh, in France, that um, uh, that was sort of like saying in a, in a in in a, in a few in a few years, um, the people uh, Frenchmen will be coming to America by quote flying through the air. So he isn't that interesting. I mean, that is really quite a visionary to do to think about that and to apply that concept to crossing the ocean by air rather than plowing through in a boat. Um, fabulous thinking on the man's part. Now, he, he was- at railroads. I mean, he could, he could, when we were traveling by horses, he, he, could, he could envision really traveling through the air, traveling through space. It was amazing. It is amazing. It's, it's, and you know, we, as you said, he's often been overshadowed by Franklin and Jefferson. And I'm so glad that you're bringing out this message about Washington and what he did. And of course, he had a great partner in Martha, didn't he? I mean, she was, I would think she was an essential part of it because he was away so much. Very, very much, much so, uh, very much so. Um, and, and it's, and Martha, there's, we unfortunately only have three letters between George and Martha because, um, because she, as was the 18th century custom, burned their personal letters um, at uh, at his at after his death. So only three have survived. Whereas with John and Abigail Adams, we know a lot more about them because, for whatever reason, their letters were preserved, and there are like 1,100 of theirs versus three between George and Martha. But again, they were pro yeah, they were very prolific uh, communicators, weren't they? Yeah, that's unfortunate. Uh, but were you able to see any of these letters, John? I know you did. Well, let, I don't want to. Uh, let's go back and talk about Martha. Continue talking about Martha, and then I want to ask you about, about the sources of your information. Well, both George and Martha, a lot can be known about them from their business correspondence. Martha, you know, when her when her. Uh, I mean, she was a she was a widowed, you know, single mother when she married when she married um, uh, 
uh, George and, and her, her uh, late husband had been one of the wealthiest men in Virginia. So she was basically running her late husband's affairs, his tobacco farms and dealing with British merchants. And so she taught George a lot about, about how, to, how to do that when it came to managing Mount Vernon. And then, yes, she managed a lot of it while George was away. Was, was away. Plus, there were whole operations like, say, the textile making. And, and also, they made that both for Mount Vernon and for sale and made things like, um, uh, you know, pillow covers and mattress covers, bedspread. So people associate President's Day with mattress uh, or what's called President's Day, the federal Washington's birthday holiday with mattress sales. And in a way, there's a mattress sales. There's actually a connection with George and Martha's Enterprises. Isn't that amazing? It, it is. And, and their partnership really, I guess, was essential to in many ways to to his success. And we don't hear that much about Martha. And I'm, I'm glad that you were talking about her and the positive things that she was doing as well as managing the estate. And of course, I guess she brought a good deal of money to the marriage, which certainly didn't help hurt at all. But um, tell me now, you you have done most of your research at Mount Vernon or where? Where did you find the greatest source of information? I The Mount Vernon staff was very helpful. And I spent a, I spent a few days there in the, in the new George Washington Library where they have some of his writings and and uh, and other things, and looked at the new things they built, such as such as the whiskey distillery, and would email them questions. But really, there is so much, and, and I I urge you know your your uh, your listeners too. There is so much now online of George George and Martha's letters with like the Mount Vernon Digital Encyclopedia and other things that I would just when I wanted to know what George Washington thought about such a subject, I would. I could put it in the search engine for Mount Vernon Digital Encyclopedia and either find an article about this or Washington's own writing. So Mount Vernon has made it so convenient for researchers like me to do that and for the lay public. So um, look at yourself. I would urge everyone to read Washington's writings. He was actually a very good writer. Well, I, th I think that's great. A great advice. And yes, um, I haven't been there in several years. I'm sure it's changed a great deal. But this used to be my favorite place to take out of town visitors to Mount Vernon. It's just such a beautiful spot and so much history there. And then to walk around the grounds and see all the things that he did. Um, and I grew up in a small town down in Virginia and we raised crops and all that. So I, I know how much work went into it. And he, of course, um, was was creative in the way he approached gardening. Did he rotate crops and do that sort of thing? Very much so. That's what, and he knew, um, you know, there was, um, there was, land was plentiful in those days. So a lot of people would just, you know, it would just, you know, when they used up one piece of land, acquired another, he knew, you know, this wouldn't have been able to, to, to do this, to do this forever. So he was a pioneer in, uh, in, in crop rotation, so much so that when the Civilian Conservation Corps uh, in uh, the, new, the New Deal in the 30s was trying to combat the Dust Bowl, they pointed to Washington's example of uh, crop rotation at, uh, at, Mount, at, Mount, at Mount Vernon, so very much so. Well, for those who are not familiar with what crop rotation really does, it's a way of preserving the, the nutrients in the soil because certain crops take certain nutrients and you rotate them so that the next crop uses something different. It's really quite fascinating that he would know about those things back in the in the 1700s. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated by it. Having grown up on a little 
farm. Well, it wasn't exactly a farm. We raised what we ate. I mean, that was basically it, John. So, but it was fascinating to, to know about him and the vision that he had um, and, and going into this without really having been uh, a form, without a formal education, educating himself. Anyway, let's just take a brief pause here. Um, you're listening to Of Consuming Interest. I'm Shirley Rooker. My guest is John Burlaw. John is a normally here talking about various policy issues, but today we're discussing something very different. We're talking about George Washington Entrepreneur, which is a new book that John has just uh, written and it's getting rave reviews. And I will tell you, anybody should read it. And, and you know, I think this would be a great book for our children, John, for younger people to read because it's, it's readable. It's, um, it's not that long. And, and as, as the facts that it contains are just astonishing. Now tell me about, so we've talked about crop rotation, but tell me about what he did. Now he, you mentioned earlier that he exported flour to London, England, which I thought was brilliant. Um, but some of the other things, he, he had a distillery there, did he not? Yes, he built the distillery actually after he was president in 1797. Um, and it's again, it shows how he read and took advice. Um, uh, it was first recommended to him by um, his farm manager who had, who had immigrated to America from Scotland. And then, but before he built it, Washington consulted his friend John Fitzgerald of Alexandria who was an Irish Catholic immigrant, came here and became a merchant in Alexandria, served as a colonel under Washington and was Washington's aide de camp during the Revolutionary War. And then where he and Washington became great friends and, and uh, Fitzgerald also became president of uh, the enterprise that Washington had formed the Potomac Company to improve the Potomac River. But Washington, I think, figured, you know, being from Ireland, uh, that Colonel Fitzgerald might know a, a couple of things about whiskey. And he wrote Colonel Fitzgerald and uh, uh, Fitzgerald wrote back to him saying, yes, that would be a great idea. So Washington built that, you know, to make rye, rye whiskey and it became one of the largest uh, distilleries in the country. And Mount Vernon has rebuilt that and actually sells whiskey based on a Washington's old recipe now. <laughs> I love that. That is, that is wonderful. Did he ever, did he ever uh, produce wine or was it just whiskey? It was just whiskey, although he loved Madeira, Spanish Madeira wine, and he wrote instructions because this is interesting about how he became a celebrity in his day after he had led the Revolutionary Forces to Victory. And just everybody, if they were passing through, would come to Mount Vernon and Washington and George and Martha showed the hospitality to anyone, you know, as he put it, you know, non-drunk. But he wrote things about, you know, don't give the... Um, uh, don't give the Madeira wine to just everybody, only only, dignita only dignitaries, give the claret to everyone, <laughs> everyone else. And, <laughs> um, and he, and I was like to myself, I think he would love things like uh, two buck chuck and, and other kinds of cheap but good wines that we have today, just, you know, <laughs> for the practical purposes of those. Well, he was watching the pocketbook and the expenses, so it's fascinating. What, oh, what are some of the other things that you discovered about him that may have surprised you? Well, that he did watch the pocketbook and was very much a numbers man. He had read a lot on to the most advanced mathematics of the day and just kept detailed ledgers that 
we still have today some of the, the ledgers he kept of what he bought. But I think one of the things that surprised me the most is that just he, how worldly he was and how he could love, you know, um, international and, and uh, things that were not native to Virginia. Like he made one trip out of, the, out, of, uh, out of North America to the Barbados when he was about 19 to go with his older brother, Lawrence, um, who was, was ill. And this was an unsuccessful attempt to try to cure him. But while Washington was there, he tried pineapples and he fell in love with those and would just order pineapples to have them shipped for the rest for the, the rest of his life. Plus, he loved the citrus fruit. So he would eventually build a greenhouse um, uh, in the 1780s, right after the first time he retired from the, the revolutionary the revolution from public life and the Revolutionary War, actually ha had to, had a greenhouse, you know, for one of the most advanced greenhouses, one of the few greenhouses in the country for the day so he so that he could grow secret citrus fruit like or, like oranges and lemon which as you know you know, would not really survive the northern virginia winter no they would not you're right well did did he have an interest in flowers was he interested in plants and trees and things like that as well i think that is one of the most fascinating things about him is how many different trees he planted both for investment value you know there's the whole this is the whole thing where, where the, the, the truth is so much more interesting than the myth. I mean, he's famous uh, for with a, something that's probably not true of, you know, chopping down a tree. As he is. But isn't it more interesting that he instead of that, he didn't chop down a cherry tree, but instead planted orange and lemon trees? I think it's fascinating. Yes. So some of the trees, because of the way he treated the soil, are still standing in Mount Vernon today. Some of the original trees. Some of the big old trees on the lawn. Um, aren't they? Aren't they original trees? Yes, I know. I mean, I mean, I know there are there are a few there. Yeah, it it is fascinating. Um, any other little tidbits you want to share? We just have a couple of minutes. Well, just George Washington Entrepreneur is the name of the book. Um, it is. Who is the publisher? Who is the publisher? St. Martin's Press, a division of Macmillan, and it's available where where books are sold. Um, if if uh, you know, they don't have it in your bookstore or online site, ask them for it. Yes. Well, I would think that people will be asking for it because it's such a, it, it's such a different view. I mean, I always used to look at George Washington thinking he looks so dour. He doesn't look like he'd be a lot of fun. I bet he was a lot of fun. I bet he had a good time in his life, especially with the creativity that he showed in so many areas and what he developed in his imagination. So I think he would have been fun at a party. John, what do you think? Well, I tr I have those instances of being, you know, just unknown to us, a fun guy. Like when he invite, like he would invite writers and artists to uh, to Mount Vernon and to some of his command posts where he was staying during the war. And one time he invited the writer Thomas Paine as a house guest of him and and, and Martha um, uh, during the last days of the Revolutionary War, where they were keeping watch. And he and Thomas Paine, um, you know, Thomas Paine, the who wrote the Revolutionary pamphlet, oh, Common yes, Sense, and right. every, everything. Common Sense. Mm -hmm. in a scientific experiment where they to try to prove that there was natural gas in the water where they actually lit went out in a boat and lit lit paper to uh, torches and 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 found that it that you know it set fires to the water and that's right where the fracking is now around around uh, around around Pennsylvania and southern 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 it's fascinating that, yeah. it, the man the man's mind was incredible um Really incredible, John. And it's so wonderful that you've introduced us to another facet of George Washington. 
I mean, and now we it, sadly we see his name being demeaned and we're not gonna go into that right now, but just to thank you, John, for a wonderful book. Um, people, we've been talking to John Burlaw. The book is George Washington Entrepreneur. It's published by Mac, uh, St. Martin's, which is the division of Macmillan. And you can find it all over the internet. I do recommend it. And John, again, John Burlaw, thank you so much for being with us. I'm Shirley Rooker, thank you. Of Consuming Interest is a public service program presented by WJLA 7 Call for Action, hosted by Shirley Rooker. Call for Action is an international nonprofit network of hotlines which offer free and confidential assistance. If you have a complaint, contact Call for Action at 301-652-HELP. That's 301-652-HELP. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the sleep number bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.